Let's do this. Welcome to Making Media. Humans are in an eternal quest for convenience. Save me time, make my life easier. My gosh, that was such a good start to an interview. All right, for the first episode of Making Media, we sat down with the father of Colossus, Patrick O'Shaughnessy. Now, you likely listen to Patrick's Invest Like the Best podcast, but in that small chance you don't, I'd highlight it is the magnet that brought everyone that works in or around Colossus to Colossus. Now, we had this conversation between Christmas and New Year's of 2022. It was originally intended to be an annual recap episode. I know, very original idea. But Dom and I decided to cover a variety of topics, Patrick's path to media, how he views Colossus, the business, and what he thinks about behind the scenes. After the interview, you'll hear Dom and I debrief the conversation we just had, and it's something we plan to do after each interview, something we hear every once in a while on other podcasts. And personally, I love it. I think it's the ideal breaking of the fourth wall where you just get some extra juice. So make sure to tune into the interview and stay for the debrief. Now on to our conversation. All right, Patrick. So Dom and I are going to jump around a lot here, but it's been just over two years since you formally launched Colossus. And you've talked a lot about why you started Invest Like the Best, but much less about why you chose to build a business around it. And I know there was this mythical meeting where you met an executive at HBO and he told you you were foolish for not building around Invest Like the Best. So can you bring us in the room there and why that was such a catalyst to the eventual launching of Colossus? Yeah, I think the important part of that story is the context in which it happened, which was early summer of 2020. So if you think back to that time, the initial fear of COVID had sort of abated, but everything was still very much locked down. Most of us still hadn't gotten it. We felt fine. We had our pods, but we were isolated. And for a certain type of person, I would certainly put myself in this category, there was this incredible restlessness that started to creep in. But then also this realization of incredible opportunity that this strange world provided cover fire or something like that for doing whatever you wanted to do. No matter what you did, nobody questioned it. So I actually started two businesses in that environment. I started Colossus and Positive Sum, both of which were like, you're doing what? Like I think during a normal environment, people would question it or have something to say about it. But it was COVID. So everyone was like, yeah, whatever. I mean, it's fine. Everyone got a free pass for six months there to literally do whatever they wanted and no one would question anything. So that was the context in which this little story happened. So one day I'm literally pacing around outside in my backyard, just again, bored and restless and just wanting to see people. And I get a call from a guy who was a senior executive at HBO, who was a fan of the show, was listening backwards in time. And a third of the way through his listening journey or something, he got in touch with me at this really nice email and we got on the phone. And he basically said, look, I love this show. It's completely unique and distinctive. I'm devouring it. And you're an idiot. You've done something which is the goal of all media people, which is to build something that people love, which is incredibly hard to do. And you've been doing it for years. And in turn, you've done literally nothing with it. You occasionally have a random sponsor that seems like you were reluctant to even have on the show. You've done nothing. You just interview somebody and put it up and that's it. There's no marketing. There's no expansion. There's nothing. You're stupid. And I thought, oh, okay, I do feel stupid. And this sounds like a little adventure. And that was the motivation beginning point for Colossus. So literally, the rest of the story is straightforward. 
the next day I put up a job spec, I got hundreds and hundreds of applicants to be the CEO. There was a crazy story for how we eventually hired Damien Breitchi, who is our founding CEO. I'll talk about more in a second. And the final four candidates actually had to do this gauntlet-like job interview with my friend Sam Hinkie, who I want to return to Sam at some point later in this conversation because I've been thinking a lot about this notion of magicians and what that means to me and realizing that a lot of what I do at the podcast is like a search for magicians. And you rarely find them even amongst this exceptional group that we've interviewed. But Sam is definitely one of those magicians. Sam sent me this crazy deep dive report on all four people. He turned out to be completely right on all four with the benefit of two years of hindsight. And I hired Damien. And then Damien built a team. Damien since left and went back to his former company to help lead it towards becoming a public company, which I definitely think was the right decision for him. But he was amazing. I could not recommend working with Damien more highly. I miss working with him, honestly. He was remarkably good. And he built this amazing core original team of which Matt was one of the very first people. Then that was it. We were off to the races. And once you have a team, and it's not just me anymore, then there's no excuses. Then you want to do stuff. Talented people want to work on stuff that's growing quickly or is hard to create or is really valuable. And it was off to the races from there. We launched Founders Field Guide as a first experiment because it was easy to do. We built and launched business breakdowns, which I'm sure we'll talk a lot about today. And then you guys have done the rest. But I just think it was one of these funny moments in time that I wish we had again so other people could experience it. Because I had that moment of realization like, oh my God, I can do whatever I want and no one will question it. And that's an inertia breaker. And it was remarkably valuable. And relative to your expectations, once you had Damien on the team and a few other people, you guys launched Colossus at the end of 2020, website went live. At that point in time, when you thought about what the business could come or if you had expectations for what it would be versus now looking back two years, how has that changed? What's the same and what's different? Well, you guys know me very well. We all talk about this a lot, which is I'm not too much of like a big vision person. Don't have and don't believe in, actually actively disbelieve in the value of big five-year plans and big, hairy, audacious goals. I think they're counterproductive. We can go into that if it's interesting. But if I think back to the beginning, I think we've stuck pretty true to the core insight that we had. So I think we had one core insight, which was audio is way more powerful as a media or medium than people give it credit for. And I think it's still underestimated. And the reason for that is very straightforward. I talk about it all the time. It's compared to, let's say, a book. If we were to have some guest of ours write a book, it would take them at least a year. And it's painful. I've written a book. I've written a very short book, and it's a painful process. So to write a 300-page book is at least a year. It's banging your head against the wall. It's a nightmare, honestly. I don't recommend it. Now, if you compare the value of that book to like an hour-long conversation, it's like literally 100 times easier to create than the book is. And you get like 90% of the value, maybe more, because voice is so powerful. It makes messages really sink in versus just reading someone's writing. So you've got like a 100x factor on one side, and you've got, let's say, at least a 10x factor on the listener side. So it's at least 10 times easier to listen to an hour-long conversation at two times speed. You can do it in places where you couldn't be reading. So it opens up time. So you've got this weird 10x and 100x force multiplier. And that alone, to me, is enough insight to build upon. So then the goal became, okay, let's create the audio library of Alexandria or Wikipedia or whatever your analogy you want to use for business and investing in audio. And maybe we bleed beyond that eventually. We're not focused on that now, but maybe five years from now, we care about that. But for now, let's just create the definitive, we talked about this notion of definitive conversations. 
let's create the definitive conversations on every business and investing topic in audio. That alone seemed like a good enough plan. And that's basically what we're still doing. We've listened to too many siren songs probably along the way. We can get into that. But if you just look at the state of Colossus today, like that is what we're doing. We're creating more and more shows, which allows us to create more and more definitive conversations. And that's really exciting. I remain as bullish on the core original insight and concept as I was at the time. And I'm actually kind of amazed that we've done as much as we've done with six different shows and lots of different hosts and a full team and much bigger audience and all those things that come with it. Before we move on, I do want to dive into that point on big, hairy, audacious goals being counterproductive. I'm someone who took advantage of COVID by building a garden box versus you building two businesses. There's clearly a difference in terms of the output, and it's something I'm consistently impressed by. How do you separate the amount of things that you do create and put into the world? You wrote a book, you do weekly podcasts, you also show up on business breakdowns and other shows with not actually laying out goals. Where do you separate goals versus output and how you plan out things? I think most things that look like they must have been goals in hindsight, for me, historically, and I think for lots of great builders, not yet putting myself in that category, they're just a byproduct of like really great habitual practices. My day is really straightforward. It's always the same. It's relatively lightly scheduled. It's filled with conversations, basically, with other people that I've come to respect. And sometimes that's me asking them questions and learning. A common one is we're brainstorming on where the profit pool and defensibility will accrue in the world of artificial intelligence. There's amazing technology here. Are there good businesses to be built? I'm sure there are. Where is that? Especially when everyone is trying to find out the answer to that question. Will it be priced in, so to speak? That kind of conversation. Then I don't schedule them. I'm just texting people. Are you free? Can we talk? And I mostly just talk to people all day and take lots of notes and then start to synthesize ideas and come up with product ideas. That's kind of what I'm doing all day long. And I think in 10 years, I'm going to be doing the same thing. I have no idea where that will take me. At some points, it naturally makes sense to build a product or a business around what you've discovered, but you have no idea when those are going to come. You can't plan for them. They're not linear or logical in their sequencing, whereas big, hairy, audacious goals very much are. Now, some of them are great. Put a man on Mars is a really interesting one. We know the steps to get there. So let's build it. But I think most of the time you can't predict the steps and therefore you shouldn't try to. My day is very simple. I would like to keep it very simple. There is a compounding underneath that. The people I get to talk to today are much more interesting than the ones I talked to seven years ago by a lot. Maybe I've reached a permanently high plateau there, but maybe there's more to go. I think that there's just always more people to discover. And I'd like to let my career and the businesses be driven by that pursuit. And I like to work with people that buy into that. If you want to come work with me and you want some man on Mars thing, you're just not going to get it. You need to buy into this. We don't know where we're going, but we know how to get there. It's something I think about a lot. There was a recent tweet about product companies buying up media businesses. And you said, you think it's much smarter and easier to start with a media company first, not the product company. Can you expand on that a bit? And what do you think makes for a great media business today? I'm trying to think of an example of, has there ever been an example of a great media franchise that was built as a marketing strategy for some corporation? The Michelin Tire Michelin Guide is the only one I can really think of that is like a great persistent thing. 
I don't know that's media. It's like a ranking system or something. But it was created as a marketing technique to get people driving more to more restaurants to use up more Michelin tires, which is cool and genius. I'm sure there's other examples, but you have to strain to think about them. None of them that I can think of, it never goes that direction. If people are interested in this, there's far smarter people than me talking about this at the churning group. We did two episodes with them. One was called Content to Commerce with Mike Kearns and Jesse Jacobs. The other was with Peter Turnin, just he and I. And they've talked about this endlessly, that they just wait for people to create amazing content franchises, and then you build businesses around them. That's a far more straightforward thing. Steve Ranella, the mediator guy, he created this unbelievably loyal fan base. And then it's like, okay, well, we know what to sell outdoors people. Sell them gear. It's not that complicated. Whereas him creating the thing, you can't plan for that. You need someone with a deep passion, with lots of grit. Even the Barstool Sports story they tell, they were the first big outside investor in Barstool Sports. Dave Portnoy spent whatever you think of him. I think he's fascinating. And he spent 10 plus years making no money, just grinding away to build this audience because he was passionate about it. And then all the benefit came later. So I think there has to be this, your second part of the question, what's good media? It's just got to be incredibly good and entertaining and different and high quality, all these superlatives. It has to be all those things because especially in the world of the internet, everyone can get almost exactly what they want. So you better appeal to a niche that you care deeply about, that you come from, that you are endlessly curious about, that you're easily bored in. So you're not just creating a content mill. And we need to be careful of that at Colossus. Once you create a show, it's like, okay, now we got to pump out episodes. How do we not make this a mill? How do we keep this pure? It's challenging. But I do think the content to commerce works a lot better than commerce to content. I was listening to Erica speak the other day, and she said when she turned up at Barstool, literally like 10 to 15 years into their journey, they didn't have a business. They just had a blog. She was like, well, we had this audience and we could just turn it into whatever we wanted to. And they obviously went the commerce route quite strongly. Are there other media brands that you look at and admire or would say, I'd like to take pieces of these different brands and mold them into Colossus? I'm trying to think about any unique answers to this. So many of them are the obvious ones. Like everyone, I'm obsessed with Disney. Like I love the history of the business and this core commitment. If you look at that ubiquitous Disney business model map that everyone sends around now, at the dead center of that thing is the creation of unique IP, unique intellectual property. It's about, again, content to commerce. That's like the original content to commerce business model map. I just love that long commitment. If you read the biographies of Disney, he's willing to do irrational things. He's not making decisions in the spreadsheet ever. On his deathbed, he's not. I want to make sure we emulate that. We talk about this a lot of, of course, we want to be a good and profitable business because that means we can reinvest and grow. We don't have outside investors. It's employee owned. We don't want outside investors for lots of reasons. At the moment, that may change in the future. But I think that commitment to content first, business and profitability second is very powerful when you study these franchises. I'm also really interested in endurance. I was honestly devastated when the news came out about Charlie Rose, where he was canceled and was obviously an asshole and was mistreating women and turned out to be just a bad person, allegedly. I was devastated by that because... I loved Charlie Rose growing up. The guy interviewed everyone from all stripes with this incredible curiosity for decades on end. Every day, he pumped it out. I just like the people that can do something for a really long period of time. There's other examples. 
Howard Stern's been doing this forever. Oprah's been doing this forever. Like people that are doing something similar that clearly love it so they don't stop. I guess that would be my other answer. My other answers would all be kind of boring. The same great media franchises that everyone else loves. It's interesting, though, the people that you just referenced there, I wouldn't consider most of them practitioners in whoever they're interviewing. And I think a lot of the new wave of media, whether it's Barstool or more in the investing category, it is people that come from investing backgrounds. And a lot of our hosts come from either investing backgrounds or founding backgrounds. How important do you think that is in terms of the quality, really, of the hosting side of the equation versus somebody with more general interests? Well, if you could think about a professional interviewer that never was active in the field, just by necessity, they don't have the domain experience. And you just learn things. We always talk about that great Picasso quote around turpentine, how art critics talk about theory and color and lighting, and artists just talk about where to get cheap turpentine. I think you get that turpentine effect when you work with hosts that are practitioners that have been investors or have been CEOs and operators. There's just no reading about this stuff. It's kind of like being a parent. You can read 20 parenting books and then you have a child. Three days later, you learn more from having the child than from every book. It's kind of like that. Not as extreme, but it's kind of like that with business and investing. I just think getting your hands dirty on the practitioner side is really important to be able to ask good questions. Otherwise, you ask high-level framework-y type questions versus nitty-gritty story type questions that you've experienced yourself. And you mentioned something there about making sure that content is first before dollars. I think something we say internally is the listener is our customer, and that's a North Star that's actually benefited us quite a bit. How did you personally get around that reluctance to sponsor, which the HBO executive mentioned to you, bringing back to that conversation? What got you comfortable? I think you've created some really strong long-term partnerships that have come out of the sponsorship program. How did you go about that? And what did you use as the guiding light to decide what was right versus what wasn't right? I have this weakness, which is I hate charging people for things. And it's not a good impulse when you're in business. And I'll never forget, it was the first capital camp. And Brent Bishore, my dear friend, said something to me, which I think about and I quote to people all the time, which is, things cost money. I think about that quote all the time. Things cost money. It's expensive to hire a team and to produce shows. And it costs a lot of money to do what we do or to do anything for that matter. And you need to charge people. And if there's value, people will pay you. So it's a lesson I've learned painfully because I have this weird aversion to doing it. I don't know where that's from. I would need a shrink or something to figure that one out. But we've just learned that we have an insane amount to give our partners. Like you said, some of them, Tegas being the most prominent of them, have turned into like incredible, probably lifelong partnerships. I'm a board observer at Tegas. I'm a big investor in Tegas. They're our lead and title presenting sponsor for our two key shows. It's a deep relationship where everyone wins. It's not cheap for them. It's a huge commitment for us. We've invested a huge amount of money with them and so on. But I've just learned if you build something valuable, then you can charge people for it. And in our case, it's advertisers. And we've had a huge success rate. I once had a friend call me and say, for a sponsor that won't be named, you're charging them one-tenth of what you should be based on how effective it's been for them in their business. And we were already charging a pretty premium price given the audience. So things cost money. If you build value, you should and can charge people for it. It's not all been positive on the media side of things. The Sports Illustrated curse and Madden curse are now joined by the Invest Like the Best curse and Business Breakdowns curse. 
it felt like this was the first year that the backlash picked up. Is that changing the way that you're operating in any way? Or are there any introspective thoughts that you have on some of the public backlash? Well, this is such a funny one. The guy that coined the term, I think is actually a lovely guy and very smart software investor. I'm actually doing this experimental screenshot Q&A thing with him right now where I ask him questions and he's got to respond in a screenshot or less in the notes app. The invest like the best curse for those that are not just thinking about invest like the best all the time is basically like the Madden cover curse. Like when someone comes on invest like the best, just like when they're on the cover of Madden, they'd always get injured the next year. And it's like a nice way of or maybe a mean way of saying like mean reversion, basically. <laughs> people like the pride comes before the fall and people are most prone to go try to get on podcasts when they've had a great run and they have a great story to tell and then things come crashing back down to earth. Now, of course, conveniently for the five years where everyone that came on the show and then went on to absolutely crush for another three or four years, there was never people talking about like, an invest like the best blessing or something. So as with all man in the arena type stuff, which whatever, who cares? Critics tend to focus on the downside. And that's just a reality. I think in some sense, you don't have something big until you have critics and haters and trolls and all that kind of stuff. So maybe we finally made it after all these years. But I do think there's an underlying truth to the notion of the invest like the best curse, which is interesting. For the most part, people talking about it are anonymous people who don't contribute much themselves. And that doesn't get me down. I've got no time for any of that. But I do think this notion of us self-reflecting on what makes the show great and where this quote unquote curse comes from is really important. And if you think about it, it's probably the biggest mistake that I've made is the willingness to accept very high profile guests who came to us versus the other way around. It turns out there is a pattern here. People come to us with agendas and we entertained probably too many of them. And the reason was because their name was huge. How the hell do we say no to person X, Y, and Z? We can't. We think we built the New York Times equivalent for the investing world, the place of record. To take it to an extreme, if Jeff Bezos called us tomorrow and was like, I really want to do the show, it's really hard to say no to that. We're not saying no. We are not saying no. Fair enough. But the reality is, and maybe there's an exempt whitelist or something that we just say yes to, but the reality is he would probably have some agenda in that scenario. And most of those agendas are building momentum and something like that. And so that happened with a lot of tech people. And obviously, tech's going through a bad year. So does it look like there's a curse? Sure, because the beta of tech has been really, really bad. You include crypto as a subcategory there or something. And again, people notice the negative. They don't notice the four years of positive, and that's fine. But I think the lesson for us is when everyone jokes about this Madden-like curse, and we dig into who they're joking about, almost every single time, it's the people that asked us to come on, not the people we asked to come on. So one of the things we've all agreed to for 2023 is maybe we make, like I said, a short list of people that if they ask us, we're saying yes. But other than that, it's got to be outbound because that's how it started. In the beginning, no one knew who we were. 100% of it was outbound. So I think a return to that is a good result of this trolley-like criticism of us. How much do you think about listeners when you're either asking people to come on the show or even during the conversation, thinking about what listeners might enjoy? Everyone likes something different. So you can't please everyone all of the time. And maybe the answer is you just follow your own curiosity and whatever attracts you is the thing to ask or the person to ask on the show. How much do you ever think about the 
big audience you've got out there now? This is really hard because in the one sense, we know who our users are. It's professional investors first. It's CEOs or senior executives that have this investing curiosity second. And then there's a long tail of other categories. But those are the two big groups of people that we know listen to us. We've done tens of thousands of person type surveys. We know anecdotally. We just know who the audience is. On the one hand, you want to remember who your customer is and continue to do things for them. And that does drive some of our decision-making. We've run some experiments that were interesting to me that no one cared about in the audience, and we shut them down. And that will happen in the future, I'm sure, too. So you do want to respect, okay, you've built an audience. They care. They're giving you their time. You should respect the hell out of that. So I guess the way I would answer it is the form we are thinking about the audience. For the individual episodes, at least for me, I really am not. I think you just get homogenous and boring if that's the case. If I'm trying to please all people, I'll please nobody. So I just try to please myself. I am the audience in this case. I am the customer. So I'm asking questions that I find interesting and important. And I think that's a good combination is to consider the audience in what we're doing, but in the specific individual units of what we're doing, forget about them and just ask the stuff we ourselves are curious about. I think it's such an interesting example as well. If you look back through your five, six years of Invest Like the Best conversations, you can see how you started very much in public company, quant-based investing conversations, and you've moved more early stage into private markets and talking more software tech over time. But I guess the form factor of Invest Like the Best has stayed pretty similar. Do you, if you project out, think Invest Like the Best could or will change? Or is there anything you want to experiment with in terms of the show and the form itself? while maintaining that I'm following my own curiosity through my career. The curiosity thing will remain true. The form factor of the interview will remain true. I think the things that could change that I'm thinking about are deeper relationships and conversations in general, and even with repeat guests more specifically. There's that great explore exploit framework that talks about like mathematically how much you should seek the new versus take advantage of what you know to be great. That's the exploit idea. I'm reaching that point where it's like, God, I've talked to a lot of freaking people. And it's really hard to find a marginal person that's better than Sam Hickey, that's better than Bill Gurley, that's better than Michael Mobison, that's better than some of the people we've had on a lot. In the beginning, there was a high percentage chance that the marginal guest would be even more impressive than the ones I've had. That percentage chance is quite low now, which tells me that I need to spend and want to spend more time with some of the best people. Everyone keeps asking me to do like some version of the all-in show, which I just don't. Maybe there's something to do there that's less frequent, like quarterly or something. Maybe there's more panels or there's more repeating characters, if you will. We're thinking about all that. Another one is I would really like this year, and we've all agreed to try it, to do some much longer form stuff. And there are certain people, I won't name them just in case we can't get them, but there's certain people who, after two hours of talking to them, I'm like, I didn't even scratch the surface. I need like 10 hours. So I would love to spend that long, eight to 10 hours interviewing a couple people and see what we could do with that. I don't know what it would be. We don't know yet. It's an experiment. But there are certain people that, some of whom I've named, if you got that long of a time, I just guarantee that it would be remarkable. And our experience with 50X, where Will Thorndike and his team spent four hour and a half episodes exploring a single business I think is great evidence of that. That was just so good. And I would love to learn from Will and follow in his footsteps a little bit, but more focused not on a single business, but on a single person. So I think whatever we want to call that, maybe we'll call it magicians or something. 
that deeper exploration using the same format is something I'm curious about. And on formats, I think you mentioned the magic of audio. And I think everybody within Colossus agrees with you on that in terms of what you can accomplish. We, I think, noticeably haven't gone into video at all, while others have dived into YouTube or you're just seeing much more video show up. How important do you think that is over time? Do you think it needs to be a piece of the business? Or for you, just in terms of experimenting with video, do you have much interest in doing it? Do you think it adds anything to the conversation or the experience, both for you, the guest, and the listener? Well, I'm kind of like a snob. I just find the proliferation of video content from interviews, which is effectively people's Zoom cameras. I just don't like it. I don't want my face to be all over the place all the time. We've even talked about taking my picture off the cover because I don't want people really to know what I look like. It's strange. It's a very niche celebrity, but if you go to LaGuardia or JFK, where it's all business travelers, I get stopped a lot. I don't particularly like that, especially when it's with my family. It's just not ideal for me. So there's a personal motivation to have my likeness out there less. I think in general, those videos, I don't really know when they're being watched. I never watch them. I don't care about them. I recognize that the raw audience number would probably go up a lot if we had video, but I don't think it's the right audience. I don't think really great professional investors are sitting and watching hour-long videos. They're doing it during the gym time. They're doing it in their car or on their commute. I just don't think it's the right audience. Now, I am curious, back to me being a snob, in some of these really long-form interviews, I probably would want to have them very professionally taped. Because maybe there's a documentary to make. Maybe there's something in that vein. And that I would be into. But I think to do it, I want to do it really, really, really high end and really well. At this point, invest like the best. We're getting north of 100,000 downloads in the first 90 days, which I think is a pretty meaningful number in terms of the investing podcast universe. There's been growth year over year, but it's started to plateau a little bit. It sounds like you've reached somewhat of a plateau in terms of the incremental guest and what they'll bring to the show. If you were to just outline what success for that show is moving forward, how would you describe that? I don't want either of those things to sound like we feel like we've won or something. To be very clear, there's literally probably thousands of people that are out there that would deliver a show that could be a top five show for us. We are not done searching. We're not satisfied in any way, shape or form. My comments earlier were just a reflection on the fact that it's harder. So we should go back to the well, so to speak, with some of our very favorite people, maybe more often than we do. That's not by any means to say that we're going to stop searching for and having great new guests on. And there's a lifetime of that because new ones are born every day. There's some 22-year-old right now that two years from now is going to be the perfect guest. So more with people we love, but by no means do we stop that search. In terms of the audience size, two thoughts. One is that we are just unquestionably, and sometimes the episodes get a lot more than that, unquestionably saturated in our original market. It is very rare for me to meet a professional investor that hasn't heard of or doesn't listen to the show. It's just rare. And that's great. We are very proud of that. And we love that we've had high penetration rate. But I don't know that there's a 3x growth from here in the professional investor market. If it is, it's not with the investors that I'm meeting. They're somewhere else that I don't know. Now, on the other hand, if you just do the raw numbers, the number of CFAs in the world, plus the number of CEOs, plus the number of professional investors, the number is much bigger than a couple hundred thousand. 
there is a bigger market to capture. We've always grown by word of mouth only. I think it will continue that march. Like you said, there has been growth and we're adding, this is a huge number of people we're adding every year still. We can be probably more intentional about it. We're going to experiment with some marketing stuff. We are pretty damn saturated in the core original market. So I think the interesting question becomes, well, what adjacent markets do we bleed into? If you add up the C-suite executives at big businesses, that's millions of people. Should we be going after that group more often? Should we do more for the core niche that we served for years? None of us have the answers to these questions, but we're not going to get to a million professional investor listens every week this year. It's going to be really hard, but we might get there over five years, whereas I'm very confident that this year there's going to be dozens of amazing guests that I probably never met before that I cannot wait to meet. How quickly into a conversation can you tell that this episode is going to be excellent? It's like a confidence interval thing. So I'm probably like 80 to 90% confident within five to 10 minutes. I could tell you how many points out of 10 it's going to be with 80 to 90% confidence within five or 10 minutes. I mean, sometimes it's immediate, especially on the good side. Very often I'll be able to tell you it's going to be like a 10 in like two minutes. But increasingly, these are people that I've met before. And I try now to spend at least a half hour with somebody that's not under the pretense of let's prepare for a podcast. It's sort of like, let's see if we're going to do a podcast. And I hope to do more of that this year. I hope to invest more time in pre-screening people to make sure that they're really, really good. If you just handed me 10 people that are all let's say, successful professional investors, though, that I had never met, I could tell really quickly. And most of that is just original thinking. You can get really far as a professional investor without ever coming up with a new lens to view companies, without ever really doing something that's uniquely yours. You can just follow the existing playbooks and go a long way and be really smart and apply the Buffett frameworks and apply this framework and that framework. And that's great. Good for them. But that is very boring to me. Because I've read all those books just like everybody else has. I don't need to hear it again. Sometimes it's good to be reminded of the core principles, and that's fine. But the really interesting people to me have something novel to say. And usually you can tell that pretty quick. I'm always shocked when you come on Slack after 10 minutes of the recording to say that this person's insane. I'm always like, how can you tell? I hosted a podcast. It takes me a long time just to figure out what I'm doing. I'm pretty accurate though in those, aren't I? Yeah, that's what shocks me even more. Tyler Cowan, who you had on earlier this year, he often talks about practice. And often people in professional sports talk about practice. When you think about podcast hosting, and we have our own roster of hosts now as well, what would you recommend to other people wanting to host a podcast? Or even how do you practice yourself? Well, I mean, I'm practicing, like I said, all the time, literally all day, every day. Effectively, all I do is call people and ask them questions. When I think about why I do that, the positive reason is I genuinely am just curious. I just love to learn about stuff. It's very animating for me, very energizing. On the other hand, it's in some ways sort of a defense mechanism. When I was young, I was introverted and somewhat shy and was always nervous about appearing to be of low value. And when you start your career, you're sort of definitionally low value, like you don't know shit. So you have to learn. My defense mechanism against others thinking that I was not terribly worthwhile was just asking questions. I just realized everyone's favorite topic is themselves and what they're focused on, not just themselves. So I could get through hour-long conversations with people. And at the end of it, they'd be like, oh, that was such a great conversation. Like, so great to meet you. And I'd be thinking to myself, I didn't say anything. I literally just asked you a question. It was kind of a strategy for me in my early career. And it works. It's a fun little challenge. Go to your next dinner party 
and find somebody and truly try to get to their core. Ask them questions. Don't ask them the generic questions. My friend Boyd Vardy has this great exercise where you have to introduce yourself to a group of people. You have to go around in a circle, but you can't mention what you do, where you're from, anything about your family, all the normal shit we talk about. Try to ask someone questions for an hour that has nothing to do with any of that stuff to begin. I think you'll find most people are really interesting. They're just used to like hitting play on their normal spiel and it's just boring. I would encourage people to just practice constantly by speaking less in conversation, by playing a game where the challenge is find something interesting from everyone you meet. You'll get good really quickly if you're committed to it. It's really not that hard is the big secret. So ask a lot of questions. There's no substitute for it. How early did you start doing that? I mean, geez, I can remember my very first big professional event. I was 22. It was an annual conference put on by our biggest customer, which was the Royal Bank of Canada. And it was all the managers on their platform, the money managers of which we were one, all of their team, their salespeople, their PMs, their CIO. It's like hundreds of people in Chicago. And I remember going to that event honestly terrified. I was sick to my stomach. I'm like, what the hell am I supposed to do here? I don't know anybody. I remember sticking really close to one of my colleagues, literally physically close to him. And I remember him saying to me like, geez, get out of here. <laughs> like, shoo. <laughs> and I was left on my own. And right at that event, I would just go up to people and start asking them questions. I didn't know what else to do. When I realized that worked, I was like, I can do this. This is not that hard. I've been doing it ever since. No, it's impressive. I've spoken to Dan McMurtry. He's listener of the pod, somebody who's in our ecosystem before about it. And he says, once you start to get into that, even being curious about businesses, about companies, you rarely arrive at an airport in a new country and don't pepper your cab driver with questions about how much construction there is and what's going on here. It's a switch in your mind where you can have an interesting conversation with anybody. The business breakdowns experience is interesting because generally speaking, it's been a success just about two years into that launch. And those episodes now get north of 50,000 downloads in their first 90 days. And that's consistently growing. And I would say that we've broken a lot of rules of podcasting where we have a rotating group of hosts, very different guests. It's not often that you hear the same voices on any single conversation. What do you think drives the success of that show? And how has it been for you being somebody who had a successful podcast trying to pass on the wisdom of going through the experience yourself for something that's a different format? In many ways, business breakdowns is the thing that I'm most excited about and most proud of at the same time, because part of the original vision of Colossus was, and I think this remains true today, I don't think there are very many good podcasts. Like I am constantly out. Everyone says there's too many podcasts. Yeah, there's too many like period but there's not nearly enough really high quality ones. So I'm always running out of stuff to listen to. I've got a gym session later today. I looked at my app this morning. There's nothing there. I've listened to everything. I listen to a lot of podcasts. I wanted to create shows that I wasn't a part of that I was excited to listen to. And now Business Breakdowns, I'm the first listener, literally the first listener of every one of these things. We've got a little private feed so that I get to listen to them first with you guys. And I can't wait to listen to them every time because I love the topic. I love the hosts that we've assembled. I love the format. And we need to do a lot more of this. A lot of our content plan for next year is more business breakdowns, things like bull versus bear debates that are really high quality. We've got lots of ideas for this. And in many ways, we have to credit Bob Pittman, who I was introduced to through a friend who built MTV and is just a genius of media formats. 
And he gave us all these insights about what to look for in hosts because of his experience with DJs, how to introduce hosts into the ecosystem. We followed his playbook basically to a T and it works. It works really well. We benefited from his insights to a great degree. So I can think of business breakdowns as our area of curiosity plus a sports center-like format. It's fairly structured. We tell hosts, if you want to do this, this is what the deal is. I'm probably the host that's the least compliant in the format that we've set up. So sorry, can't help myself. But I do think we've created a repeatable franchise that's not relying on any one host, on any one guest. Just like SportsCenter has some notable anchors through its history that then go on to have their own shows and so on. But it's a pretty consistent format with personalities you come to love that rotates over time. So thanks to Bob Pittman, thanks to SportsCenter and other points of inspiration, we need to do more of this and make it repeatable. And I'm really proud of the work you guys have done on it. It brings up brand. You've got a conversation on Hermes coming out soon, which is awesome. And that's an unbelievable brand. But just in building Colossus, your own show, which has a big brand, what have you learned about brand from the practitioner side of things? We often talk about brand on all of our shows. What have you learned from this media business that we're building? Well, I'd like you guys to answer this one because I don't know if I'm any good at brand. I think I'm really good at naming stuff. I've had a good track record there. Like I said, our marketing has been word of mouth. We don't do paid marketing. We didn't have some fancy brand company create our logo or anything. I've never done that. It's always been like 99 designs, literally, in a week. Not much thought put into it. Right now, I think it's confusing. Rich Barton messaged me one time, the founder of Zillow, who's also the founder of Glassdoor and Expedia and all these amazing businesses. And he's the king of brand thinking and brand positioning. And he called me and he said something funny, which was, listen, I'm a fan of what you're doing across the different stuff you're doing, but I have no idea what any of this stuff is. Like you've got seven different brands. They don't clearly tie together. It's confusing how you spend your time. I don't know what's going on. I'm a fan and I have no clue what's going on. And that's not good. (laughs) There's a consistent theme here of great people telling me I'm an idiot. So I don't think I'm a brand expert by any means. And you guys are the ones building this. I'm curious what you think. Do you think we've done a good job building the Colossus brand? Where and why is the Colossus brand important relative to the brands of the individual shows? I would suspect that Invest Like the Best and Business Breakdowns and maybe even like 50X and certainly founders have far bigger brand recognition than Colossus does, I think. So what do you guys think? Have we done a good job? How do you want to do it differently? I think the best brands take time in terms of how they build. So it's not paid growth. And even the fact that we don't do a lot of that marketing, I think is part of the branding. All of our extra dollars and time generally go into the chaos that is behind the scenes in the back of the house creating the episodes. But I think where the power of the brand does come in is if Colossus releases a new show, having that Colossus brand mean something and have value that's going to be able to extend much further than having us just do a simple ad read on business breakdowns or invest like the best. So some type of logo or something in your mind that triggers immediately, okay, this is under the Colossus umbrella. These are the standards that they have. And that just allows for a lot more scaling. I could tell you personally, when I came into the business, it was always a question of, well, I know Patrick's time doesn't scale. I know he has a lot of different interests. So in order to really grow, there's eventually going to have to be a brand that sits above Patrick that he's very much associated with, but that other people can take hold of and start to lean into different things. And I think about it, as you mentioned, Barstool, The Ringer, 
these are brands that have some type of association with them in terms of playfulness or humor and their audiences are easy to identify if you step back. And I think that takes time. I think we could be much better at it personally. That's something that I would take on my own chest as something that I could be much better about leaning into building the brand around Colossus. But I do think it's important for there to be a parent brand. And Dom and I did the Harvard Business Review podcast, and that's just a great example. So much of what comes out of Harvard Business Review has nothing to do with Harvard. It's completely separate, but it has that Harvard stamp and that branding is extremely powerful. So I think it's something where there's room for improvement. I think we need to define it a little bit better in the future, but I don't think it can just be ignored at the expense of focusing on the individual brands. One thing that brings to mind is where I do think you guys have built, and to be clear, in many ways, I'm just the biggest and best customer of Colossus. I'm not the CEO, Matt's the CEO, I'm the chairman, which is the right title conceptually. Like I spend a chairman amount of time on the business, but the vast majority of that time is as the host, interviewing people. And I spend most of my time on positive sum. I'm spending my career as an investor. And I think that's a really important thing for people to know. It brings me to this idea that where we do, I think, have a really strong brand is with other podcast hosts and with would-be hosts. I think we have clear pole position that Will Thorndike wants to launch a show. He came to us. If David Senra wants a network partner, he chose us. He came to us. He had lots of options, someone of that talent level. So I do think that we've created a brand where we are a great home for other would-be podcast hosts. We've got a few that are cooking right now that are in a similar vein. That is an incredibly valuable brand to cultivate. The listener side will grow over time. I think you're right. Those are great examples you gave and we need to get there and it will just take time. But I think we're kind of already there and we need to even strengthen it more on the host side. I think that's where our brand is probably the strongest. From my side, you can feel it most in just terms of the respect from your listener and also you're talking about hosts. It's a thing that takes a long time to cultivate. You've been doing it for six years. You've built our brand effectively until we launched Colossus in 2020. And you're almost riding the crest of a wave when you launch something new because people respect the brand. But you have an unbelievable standard to hold the next episode or show up to because that trust and respect with your listener can be lost so quickly. It takes a long time to cultivate and a very short time to lose. So it's a really, really difficult thing to maintain over time. You just have to keep your standards incredibly high because the moment you drop them, you lose your brand quality. It's not something I think Seven Powers talks about this a lot. It's a very difficult thing to define. And it's a very easy thing to lose. So it's all just about standards and quality. The stuff we do behind the scenes is real. We do this far less now. It's gotten so much better. But we used to not publish a pretty large percent of interviews that we did. And trust me when I say that is hard to do. It's very hard to take someone's time. These are all super successful people that we're talking to who are used to winning. And it's soured relationships for me. I'm sure there are plenty of people out there pissed off at me specifically for not airing an episode or something. And we try to be really upfront with people about that. We try to use you guys as the standard so that I'm not the one grading episodes. It's you guys whose taste I trust implicitly. And it's hard. Keeping a quality bar, it's very easy to say, very hard to do. And I think if we have a great brand in five years, it will be because of a lot of things. But first and foremost, it will be because we set and maintained a certain quality bar. Yeah. And it's actually proven to be valuable. If you go back to the beginning of the year, we didn't run shows for the first two weeks of the year, both invest like the best and business breakdowns. 
which not only created for awkward experiences of telling those particular guests that we weren't going to run the episodes, we also had to tell sponsors that we weren't going to be running episodes and talk through refunds and credits and whatever it might be. And the sponsor, our main sponsor, ended up booking more months into the future and mentioning that that was exactly the reason why they tried to work with us was because of the quality bar. So one of the rare instances where a negative can turn into a positive and holding true to one's rules and standards actually proves to be quite valuable. I want to get a little bit back to your finding of people, both from a guest side, from a host side. You referenced the concept of magicians and Sam Hinkie referencing this. Can you expand on that a little bit and how that plays into your strategy, not only from a guest perspective, but also from a hosting perspective and people within your ecosystem? I've been obsessed with this word recently because of this awesome article that I read that we'll link to in the show notes or something. But it's this woman talking about finding people that she views as magicians. And there's this great little passage. It says, not only is any sufficiently advanced technology indistinguishable from magic, any sufficiently advanced technologist seems like a magician. So she's talking about how she could become next level good at whatever she does. In order to write the new version of this life description that she writes down for herself, I need to imagine a version of myself who, by definition, I cannot understand. If I understand her, she wouldn't be magical. So everyone's heard this idea of sufficiently advanced technology appears like magic. I love this corollary idea that a sufficiently advanced person seems like a magician too. And if the three of us sat down and just had the guest list from our 600 episodes up on the screen, I'll bet you we would agree pretty quickly who the true magicians were. So what's our definition of a magician? It's basically somebody, like she said, that they know things that don't seem possible. I'll use an example that I use a lot, which is Gabe Layden on marketing and game design. Gabe is a magician in those two arenas. I don't understand how he does what he does. When we had him on the show, he had no Twitter following. Right now, he's got more than me. Two months ago, he had like 1,000 and he has 250,000. And I don't know how he does it, actually. I know some of the tactics, but it's more than the sum of the parts. There's something going on. It's like the Matrix. These magicians see the green code in the Matrix, like Neo style. And I'm fascinated by these people. I was reflecting on ahead of the episode today. I mentioned Sam Hinkie a few times. He's such an incredibly high quality person in so many ways, but he's also a magician. And I was trying to think, what makes him a magician? And I think it's most people of Sam's intellect, which is very, very, very high would not be willing to do so many things that don't scale for their friends and their tribe that Sam is. The willingness to constrain himself on focus and depth that that allows turns Sam into a magician in certain categories. So invariably, if I've got like a strategy question, I call Sam because there was one for Colossus earlier this year. And it was by far the most valuable conversation I had on this topic and basically made the decision for me because it was just so insightful. And I don't know where it comes from. And I know generally that it comes from him reading in detail, studying more than anyone else I know across domains and the ability to, with a high IQ, synthesize all this stuff and present it in like this perfect package. I kind of know that that's where it comes from, but it still feels like magic to me because I don't know anyone else that I could call and get that sort of response. It's just amazing. And there's lots of examples like this. I went tracking with a guy in... Africa. I've done it several times now. His name is Rainius and Flongo. And Rainius is an actual magician. 
you go out with him and you think that there's spotters and helicopters sending him messages in like an earpiece or something. And it's just actually not believable what he does. And you know, it's just this insane commitment and experience and practice and natural ability and, 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 and. It takes a lot of ands to make a magician. I think that's what we're hunting for. That frame for me now is really helpful. As we think about the marginal guests, I don't want the number three partner at some big private equity firm. That guy or gal is not a magician. No chance. I want people that have blazed a unique path that don't ever give up on it because I think that produces that magic that makes our best episodes so interesting. Charlie Songhurst investing in 500 startups after being the head chief of strategy at Microsoft for forever. The experience he's accumulated and the passion he has, you listen to that episode, you're like, this guy's an actual magician. I can't believe this guy. And the times I've talked to him since, every time I talk to him, it's the same thing. I'm like, I can't believe this guy knows all this stuff. So I think hunting for magic is a really nice frame for us. And we should be honest about it. And maybe just to throw one final example out there, business breakdown seems like, well, that's a little bit harder to have magic because it's structured. Whereas if you go listen to the Rolex episode, tell me that Ben isn't magical on this topic. He is because he spent God knows how many hours wearing, thinking about, investigating, studying Rolex. It's crazy. So we can find magicians everywhere. And I think not everyone will be. There's a lot of great episodes that aren't magicians. There will be most episodes that aren't magicians, but it's a great standard to aspire to, I think. We certainly have a nice seat in all this too, because there is an editing process. But with the magicians, you almost don't need to touch a thing. It's this natural flow. There is no regurgitation. It's a connecting of the dots. And I think it gets even more magnified by the asking of good questions, which dives deeper. And I think having spoken to many of our hosts that work within Colossus and them asking me for feedback and saying that they ask you, Patrick, for feedback, and I might just start telling them that you're a magician because most of the time you do this in such an effortless way. And this is not intended to blow smoke, but I do think you put two magicians in a room breaking things down and that's what makes for really, really special episodes. Who do you guys think are the magicians that you've heard speak? Doesn't have to be on our shows. It could be anywhere. Mitch Lasky came to mind. I don't know much about gaming, but I listened to that episode and I was blown away by just the level of detail. There's tons of things he wouldn't share with us, but the things that he did, I've never heard any of that stuff anywhere else. I know all the stuff that he wouldn't share because he shared it with me privately. It's amazing. His proprietary IP is yet more mind-blowing and beautiful and incisive and simple. And he's a great example. A lot of these people, not only are they unbelievable in their domain, they're also extremely good at communicating, which is a really difficult thing to pair it with. Steve Jobs is the archetype in this domain where people refer to his communication skills. But that's such an underrated aspect of all of this stuff because some people are brilliant, but they just can't convey their ideas at all. Songhurst really sticks out to me as just being somebody who the episode itself I listen to on a frequent basis. It's actually changed meanings for me. David Senra talks a lot about rereading books. I like to re-listen to episodes. Just to give a different example, I even thought Carl Kawaja and the way that he could take something like investing, which can be very mundane, it could be just full of Buffettisms, and actually use a more creative description of what's really going on, the real approach to investing, and tell it in a more storybook way about the importance of different pieces to it all, and do it in such a natural way. That was just such a pleasant experience to hear somebody who's at a much different level describing their own process. So he was one whose episode really sticks out to me for 
a lot of non-obvious reasons, I think. We went into this conversation talking about a review and we decided to veer away from a review. But if you look back at the last 12 months, what other conversations stand out in your memory as ones that I would love to go back, either interrogate in this magician mold or just you went in and came out thinking like, wow, I'm just so energized by that. My answers are always the ones that are from a new perspective where I'm really truly learning, not just hosting a conversation on a topic I know well. So my answers will really be about stuff where I learned the most, not necessarily anything else. So the reason we did it with Jeremiah Lowen on AI was a big one for me. I've been spending a crazy amount of time with him offline, actually building some stuff, some of it related to Colossus and what AI on top of our transcript library could produce. So that's been just a hands-on, completely fascinating one. I really enjoyed the one with Ron Howard and Brian Grazer. I love the world of entertainment. I love their lifelong partnership. Like It was this beautiful thing. And they've created so many iconic, amazing stories, I guess. Movies, documentaries, TV shows, like every format they've done. They're just amazing. You mentioned Mitch Lasky. I mean, the one I think that will be listened to the most 10 years from now is the one with David Senra. It was episode 292. It was called Passion and Pain. And the guy's just the definition of interesting and hardworking and passionate and curious. Every episode he does, he's distilling down a great entrepreneur's life. And then in our episode, that's an hour and a half, he distilled down the hundreds of entrepreneurs into a single hour and a half. I mean, it's like a distillation of a distillation of a distillation, and it's just pure gold. That's probably the one that I've heard the most about. Ravi Gupta's episode stands out mostly because, again, like Sam, Sam, I think he's the one that introduced me to Ravi. He's such a high quality person. I just think so highly of him. And I thought that episode is one that will really stand the test of time remarkably well. There's so many others that are, if you're interested, like the one with Martin Casado on the past, present, and future of digital infrastructure. If you're not interested in digital infrastructure, keep walking. But if you are, it's just so good. It's so detailed and so interesting. Ditto for someone like Dimitri Baliazny, who's a very famous in the hedge fund world. Or again, if you're interested in like the pod model in hedge fund land, it's a great inside look at what's going on there. And it's just hard to find something like that anywhere else. And then, of course, maybe I'll close with Frank Slootman, which I think was early in the year. If you want a shot in the arm, like the equivalent of business Adderall, go listen to Frank for 45 minutes and I think you'll be ready to tackle the day. You referenced a little bit about building something AI related with Jeremiah and that's happening within the Colossus ecosystem. And one of the things that's been really incredible for me is to come inside this universe and see all the activities that are happening behind the scenes. One of the most special things to me is seeing who's listening to our episodes. And it's often very impressive people and people that would qualify as magicians. There's often some interesting commentary back and forth. What are behind the scenes experiences that stand out to you from either this year or just since doing the podcast, which really made you feel like there's something special going on within the business? I'm just talking to people all day long and I'm really excitable and I love ideas. So when I talk to someone and they give me a great idea, I share with you guys because I'm excited about it. I think the downside of this is I'm like a golden retriever or something. Like I'm really excited. I'm not coming with a directive. I'm not like, okay, now we need to do this. It's more just like, we need to think about this. And most of the time, they're not worth spending time on. Give everything a day and most stuff fades away. I do share a lot with you all about what I'm learning as I'm learning it. 
in little snippets or articles or whatever. And it's just a constant stream of that. And I think it will always be a constant stream of that. I guess the lesson is, I don't think there's anything innately special about me. I think that I'm smart enough to do this, what I do. But more than anything, I'm just curious and persistent enough. The story of all this, in many ways, it's just beginning. We're only six years in. I think anything really interesting takes much longer than that to build and compound. And I'm fairly young. I'm in my 30s. We got a long, long way to go on all these compounding curves. But I do think what's happened so far is evidence that if you just do something with commitment over time, really cool stuff happens. Everyone says that, but then very few people actually do it. And I would bet if you committed to having a conversation per week, Brian Grazer calls these his curiosity conversations. He does one a week too. He's been doing it for 40 or 50 years. And he's talked like everyone in the world as a result. If you do one of these a week in your field, I guarantee six years from now, you're going to be in a much more interesting place than you are today. But the challenge is it's hard to do. It's really hard to do one or more of these a week. And if there's any secret to the success of what we've done so far, it's just consistency. Am I good at asking questions? Maybe I'm much better than I was when I started. I think if you listen to the first few episodes, you'd be like, it's all right. Sounds fine. Anyone can get better at that. Anyone can do it. It's just hard to do. You got to commit to it. It's not more complicated than that. Yeah, there's a lot of cool behind the scenes stuff. Yeah, we get to interact with lots of the world's best people. But why is that true? It's just curiosity and persistence. That sums it up. Awesome. Well, you and Damien built a nice foundation for Dom and I to inherit and build on top of. And this has been a fun conversation. I hope to be having more of these and share more about what we're building in public in the years ahead. Thanks, Patrick. Maybe just to highlight why I'm so excited now more than ever. Up until now, really up until now, now, like the end of 2022 going into 2023, which is when we're recording this, Colossus has very much been a freewheeling experiment. It looks consistent from the outside, but there's lots of stuff that we tried that failed massively, that we spent a ton of money on, that was not the core thing that we knew people loved. We've gotten seduced by alternative business models that scale better than ours. We've gotten seduced by all sorts of stuff. And that's fine. That's the early phase of any business. And we learned a lot and we won't make similar mistakes in the future. But only now, two years in, do I feel like we have a full squad led by you guys, by you two in particular and Joe, that is ready to tackle what we know is the clear opportunity in front of us with extreme focus and with a very long runway. So for me, if you had asked me a year ago, what's Colossus going to do next year? The answer would have been all over the place. And a lot of the common part of those answers would have been like, I don't know. We're figuring it out. Whereas this year, it seems like I can answer that question crisply, quickly with three categories. We know exactly what we're going to do. And we have a team that is extremely experienced now. We're kind of like the soldiers smoking the cigarettes as the bombs go off while the new recruits are freaking out. We've seen a lot now. And that is ridiculously exciting to me. And I get so much of the credit because it's my voice all the time. But really, you guys are spending your lives and careers building this thing. And it just has me incredibly excited. So I'm very thankful to be working with you both and with the bigger team. And I think 2023 is going to hopefully be our best content year ever by a lot. It will be. Awesome. Any last comments, Dom? No, thank you very much for being our first guest. First of many, and I hope to have you back a lot over the years as well. 
Thanks for doing this, guys. All right. Welcome to the debrief. Dom and I will do a debrief in every episode. And why, you may ask. I actually think this is where a lot can be learned from interviews themselves. And probably the best example I have that comes to mind is an episode that Ryan Rossillo did where he interviewed the boxer Tyson Fury. And it was before a big title fight. And it was this insanely awkward interview where for 10 minutes, you basically had Tyson Fury giving one word answers, clearly didn't want to be there. And at one point, Rosillo just says, okay, I'm out of questions. And basically cuts it off and says, I feel like I'm ruining your day. And the interview completely turns. Turned from this awkward thing to then Fury gets all excited and they're having this conversation. And to me, once the interview ended, I didn't want it to end there. I kind of wanted to understand a little bit more. And fortunately, Rosillo sat down with the two producers, Steve and Kyle, and they had this conversation where they really broke the fourth wall and talked about it. He went into the, all this research. He did all this studying of the fights, and he was a little upset, and he lost his cool a little bit, but then it turned out good. And I think those little things actually have so much power. And with media, when you can break the fourth wall and acknowledge certain things, you get this closer connection. So we're hoping some of that comes from this. We'll do it after each episode. I think you'll get some really interesting back and forth and things that might have been on our minds and pointing to obvious things that we might have missed that immediately come to mind. Those are always interesting conversations that we have after interviews anyway. So we might as well record them. Dom, anything you would add there to sell the concepts of these debriefs? Honestly, it's something that I've always wanted, particularly when I think about Patrick's conversations and someone like Zach on Business Breakdowns. When you listen to the episodes, I'm always curious as to what they're thinking in the moment when someone's answering a question that they've asked. Because a lot of the times when you've asked a question, you kind of have a preconceived notion of what the answer may be or where the guest might go. And sometimes they go where you thought they might. And sometimes they go in a very different place. You don't always agree with what someone has said once you ask them a question. But often in podcasting, you don't really get a chance. And it's not generally a host's role either to counter that answer if they don't agree with it. It's always something that I've wanted. You don't want to call out the guest live. You just want to call them out after they've ended. And you feel like, that was idiotic. What was he thinking with that yeah. answer? Goes in the Slack channel. So we bring the Slack channel to the podcast. Oh, amazing. Well, it does bring up the first point that I was going to have from this conversation, which is I've gotten to this point where I feel pretty confident about questions that I'm asking in interviews. Most of that is from the PR push that was made in corporate America to stall when answering questions by saying, that's a great question. So <laughs> we frequently have every answer start with, that's a great question, which makes me feel really great about myself. But in this particular instance, interviewing Patrick, understanding how critical he can be on questions asked in interviews, I will say, I was looking in the mirror a little bit while doing this and say to myself, hmm, is he slacking somebody else right now saying that was a really weak question or get this over with? Almost certainly. We can agree that he was. <laughs> Almost certainly. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to get his list of questions after the fact. But that was definitely a thing that was running through my brain, which hasn't happened in a while, but it's good to get those nerves up. The other thing that just makes me laugh is the starting two businesses during COVID. And it's something that he has in common with one of our other hosts, Jesse Puji, who also just kind of like starts businesses as if they're hobbies. And I've said it to them before. I'm not somebody who just takes extra time and binges Netflix, but my projects look a little bit different. I made this table for my printer to sit on. It's building. I could put builder in the Twitter profile. Well, how's your shed coming along? That's what I did want to ask. 
the shed that I work in quite frequently, that one. So yeah, it's built. You managed to do that during COVID. I'm pleased for you. It's got heating? Yes, heating. Yeah, we could classify it as something other than a shed if we want to, but I like the common man description of the shed. I do some of the recordings out there. That could be our office. We don't have an office. Maybe we call that the office. Yeah, gives a little bit of a cabin feel too. So whenever I'm feeling that Walden, you know, get that in spirit with nature, I'll hit out the shed and change up the office scenery for a little bit. Yeah, it definitely was interesting to get his take on COVID as just covering fire to try anything. Yeah, I think I probably had a different approach to it at the time, but I did get this job during it. So maybe there's some similarities going back to the, what you said initially. And we asked him in this and he didn't really give us an answer. If you ever ask Patrick tips on hosting a podcast, you never get anywhere. And I remember Eric Golden talking to him early on when he started Web3 Breakdowns. He said, I asked Patrick, what should I be trying to do? How do you go into this process? How do you prep? And he was like, I just didn't get very far. Patrick just doesn't have any answers for you. He has his process. And as he said, his process is literally just talking to people all of the time. So he's always practicing in his mind. And he doesn't think too much about it because there are just tons and tons and tons of reps and they appear to be quite useful. Yeah, it's most commonly the repetition point, but there's no secret sauce. I do think there's this funny parallel when you think about great sports players, particularly great NBA players. The ones that make for great coaches are often these role players who have had to fight to get on the court or were journeymen or were backup point guards. You think about people like Steve Kerr, even a Doc Rivers. It's not common that you see the all-star player as the coach. And my thought had always been, well, these are people who've really had to understand the game at the most finite level and maybe didn't have that same natural talent. Now, I think obviously, regardless of who you are as a player, you're going to have to put in reps, you're going to have to put in practice. But sometimes there's a certain talent level that you start with where you could just see things a little bit easier than others can. And it comes more naturally to you versus the people that have to put in more work to get there. So that's always what I think of as an interesting parallel is coaching in sports and why you don't see the Jordans of the world turn into being successful coaches. And honestly, there's a long list of those who have tried it that have failed pretty massively. And I think that could be a piece of it in terms of how they see the game and coming from a much different perspective than where it comes from for the coaches. Yeah, so true. I've always thought Andy Murray would be an amazing tennis coach versus someone like Federer. He struggled through tons and tons of finals and I think thinks about the game very deeply, whereas Federer just strides on, never breaks a sweat and still wins. Calling Andy Murray that much of a level below Federer, I mean, I know he is by all measures. The man won a major. He's won plenty. There are no bigger Andy Murray fans than me, but there are facts and this is a fact, unfortunately, for Andy. Role player. The other things I wanted to call out were his piece on when we asked him relative to expectations, where do you think we kind of are from two years ago to now? And he's like, as you guys know, I don't set big, hairy, audacious goals. I'm not really that kind of thing. I remember reading Patrick's Growth Without Goals article a number of years ago. I know a lot of other people also read it. He really is like that to work with. He doesn't set any grand visions for you to execute against, but there is just a relentless energy every day, whether he's talked to someone or has an idea or someone's come to him with an idea or he's recorded a podcast. There's always something getting thrown at you and it's always kind of a small thing, but then you end up building this bigger thing. And a lot of our shows that we've launched over the last couple of years have come from those small kernels of ideas that someone sent to him or he's recorded with someone. And then we've thought about, okay, could this become a bigger thing? And so, yeah, it's definitely true. I always thought ahead of time, like everyone sets goals. You kind of have to, to achieve anything. 
there is a sliding scale and he sits somewhere on the scale, but he's much further away from goals than most people I know. Yeah. And it is habits over goals and a certain behavioral style over goals. I think that answer was completely accurate. It's a matter of a lot of different things coming in and running after them when they do and testing out what's interesting. But we have probably a new project or idea a day. They have certainly gotten more focused in nature, but I think you're 100% right. And I think that's a concept that people still struggle with quite a bit. And the phrase without goals really catches people off guard. But I think the more you dive into it, the more you appreciate the nuance between especially something like a big hairy audacious goal and something smaller in terms of milestones, you can appreciate what that means and appreciate just what the real progress looks like and how oftentimes it's you're just moving in the right direction end up in the right place, not moving directly to the place that you want to go. Definitely. The one thing that we didn't really get into, which if he's lucky enough to come on our show again, I would like to ask him about is just delegation. He is a master delegator and it's something I struggle with. I would love to know his tips on delegating. It might be similar to his tips on podcasting, but I would be keen to get into it with him because once you earn his trust, he gives you a really long leash, which is very cool because you can just go and do stuff and he just assumes that you're doing good things within his ecosystem. But I would love to understand how he has built that skill if he has indeed built it or he's just been born with it. Yeah. And that is not an undertone comment that you're making there or a subtweet or a backhanded compliment in terms of the delegation part. It's truly... No, it's impressive. Yes. Yeah. Superpower. And what I would say is to the extent that delegating is not working, he pulls back that very quickly. So it's noticeable if that trust is lost. So I agree with you. And I think I've experienced this and I think many people have experienced it in terms of creating leverage. That's where it comes into play the most. And with media businesses, I think trusting people with the content itself, making sure things are right, the details matter. And there's so many logistical things that matter. And it's like, yeah, well, if one of these gets screwed up, it doesn't take a lot of brain power to do it, but it can actually have quite an impact. So it's super important and it's not easy to do because of how important all those decisions are. And I think he does it really well as evidenced by the various different projects that he's involved in. 100%. Anything else from your side that you came out with? No, I think you hit it all pretty well. I think it's funny to think about the system that was put in place by Damian, Josh, Joe, the engineer, that founding team and all that we got to inherit and take control of and take some of the credit for success over. They built an insane foundation. It's kind of crazy how the system still works as well as it does years later. And how if you would have told me this is where we'd end up, I would have said, ah, that makes sense. But the path we took was anything but the path I would have expected that we took. So that was the other thing. And I would officially like to cut that clip where he mentions the comments about video and just send that to anybody who ever asked me why we don't do video for the podcast. I could just play that on repeat. If we could frame it, we would, but we can definitely clip it. Amen. Awesome. Well, yeah, that was a very enjoyable one. Good one to kick things off. More to come. Yeah. See you soon.